Once again, to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. I am your co-host, Mike One, co-host also, Mike. In a moment, we're giving you back-to-back Oscar race checkpoints today. Uh, Kind of a two-parter, I guess, as this one will be full of previews and reviews. Most importantly, with the reviews, we'll be focusing on The Woman King. We finally got our hands on that one, Michael. Yeah, we got to talk about the Oscar lens for The Woman King. A lot of possibilities there. Uh, I also saw a bunch of movies. You saw... Uh, a, a movie about uh, John Hamm, which you've mm. been prone to do. I'm over happy last... that he's back in my life. Yeah, yeah. So you you like to watch your John Hamm watch films? That. And then he was on Howard Stern promoting that film, so I watched all those mo- interviews. I, I I just want to be friends with John Hamm. That's I, what I've decided. I gather this, so I yeah. think you know you got to get hired by the Ringer somehow. Meet him mm-hmm. at a par- corner him at a party. If I could get John Hamm and cousin Sal in my like group of friends that's that's it that's all i need out of life there you go so now you have a goal uh and we could pursue said goal uh but look we have uh we have a huge oscar race checkpoint that we we're going to record one episode on and then we're like okay when can you record the don't worry darling review this weekend i don't know and then you're like wait a minute swells in austria what the hell are we gonna all right let's cut this one into two because we got all the tiff fableman's news Fableman's maybe being a new best picture front runner that we want to analyze uh, in its own pod. There's a lot of Academy news coming up, so we'll cut that and spin that one off into its own Oscar race checkpoint in the truest sense after the reviews and previews one where we're going to review and preview a lot of stuff here. Yeah, so this is where uh, this is the first part of two technically this week, two Oscar race checkpoints for you. Uh, and let's let's start with making the case in this one. We'll start with the reviews. Uh, just a quick word on Confess Fletch. It was like it's not <laughs> the greatest in the world. It was like a C plus for me, but I was expecting like a D, especially based on the first trailer. And I literally only rented it for twenty bucks. By the way, I spent nineteen ninety nine to watch John Hamm and Roger Sterling come back into my life on the same screen. <laughs> But it was fun. I mean, it was it was a fun watch. I might watch it again someday, which is more than I can say about some Oscar movies that we've covered here in the last few years. But again, that has more to do with my man crush on John Hamm probably than anything else. But it was a fun. I don't know that it's worth twenty dollars, but mm-hmm. you know, if you when it comes on VOD or when it comes on demand somewhere, yeah, absolutely throw it on for a background movie. You could do much much worse. I'm glad to hear it. I just watched the trailer before we hit record today. Bad trailer. And the trailer has one laugh into in it. Yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. It, if it, that, it was actively like unfunny mm-hmm. uh, for most of it. So I'm thrilled to hear that this seemed to be a fun watch for you. Like you said, it was it. What, were you laughing consistently during the movie? Eh, not really. I mean, I was I was <laughs> laughing. I was laughing because I was happy to be back with John Hamm more than I was laughing at the content. But no, I, like it's just a it's a decent story. It's a decent like you know full of kind of twists and turns and the reveal. There is a, a big laugh in the reveal that got me pretty good. So there's at least one like hearty ha ha in it. But mm. it's just kind of this this mystery and this procedural, and it was just a fun movie, and it's just a good hangout movie. I'm glad to hear it. So uh, two laughs and you like to hang out with John Hamm. That's what we've learned. But OK, let's let's get into the centerpiece of this uh, make the case segment. That's got to be the woman king. And we got to get some of the nonsense out of the way, because there was some discourse on Twitter, of course, that was unsavory in many people's opinions. And what? a lot of our friends. Is that were, the first time that happened on Twitter? Yeah, they were they were outraged by the outrage because a lot of people were calling out the historical discourse on the film uh, as being something that is worthwhile, and I just don't get it because like artistic license with in a historical backdrop is like one of Hollywood's oldest traditions, and yeah. historical fiction is perhaps the oldest storytelling yeah. tra- tra- tradition going back to Homer. Michael, so like we grew up in this age of Braveheart and Gladiator and Patriot where we have all seen, I mean, go go, just search on YouTube for historical accuracies of those films. 
And and if you remember back in the day, like Spike Lee talking talking out and speaking out against the Patriot and how whitewashed it was and how absurd it really was. And then like Mel Gibson just does what Mel Gibson does for the next 10, 20 years. Like, what are we talking about in terms of? Well, I, so I, I, didn't, I didn't see the controversy. So you're saying there was a lot of people out there. Uh, who took offense to how the history of the Dahomey kingdom was presented because it was much more ruthless in reality. And then we had friends who were, like, defending the movie from these criticisms, is what you're saying? Absolutely. And then I'm thinking about every war movie ever. Yeah. And, of course, you're going to tell a story about a character in that movie, and that's going to be your audience surrogate. And that character is going to take on the means, you know, the, the the characterization of a hero character, which is every single movie ever for right. the historical backdrop. And not to mention, I would love to know how many of these people who are criticizing the historical accuracy of the Dahomey Kingdom knew anything about the Dahomey Kingdom prior to doing research on it for this movie. Yeah, they read the Wikipedia page. Exactly. And they read, you know, like... they read a few statements that, I mean, and there's centuries of, of knowledge in there where, of course, you're going to have dissenters throughout history. Bottom line is, you have a movie about a fictional character, a couple of characters, and they don't have to represent all of Dahomey history, especially from like the 200 years in question here. Well, you're also damned if you do and damned if you don't, because yes, of course, this is Hollywood's approach. This is what we talked about. In the, I, this is my take in the pre-production. Like Hollywood's approach has to be, I don't want to use the term whitewashing here, but it, 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 making it happier, making, making well, it protagonist. You have right. to put it, you have to put the story through a somewhat modern lens because of the modern audience. And and if you're if you're going to present somebody as the protagonist and somebody as the good guy, that that's what you have to do. And yeah, you're gonna if you do that, you're going to have historical inaccuracies. But if you do a retelling of how it actually was, step by step, and how people actually were, a, a serious true to life retelling, you get the Northman, which also gets criticized <laughs> for how accurate it is and how there's no good guys and how you just and feel what like a jerk he was the whole right. time. So, like, <laughs> So it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. So, I, I mean, really what you're saying, if you're criticizing the historical for not being 100% historical accurate with this type of movie is just don't make the movie, which is nonsense. Yeah, but, I mean, obviously we don't know if if there were dissenters to slavery. I mean, look, let's be honest. The Woman King deals direct, directly with the slave trade. It's central to the I thought that was plot. one of the highlights is that I knew there was an issue with the Dahomey Kingdom and their play. I said this in the lead up too when we previewed this movie. Right. I was like, I hope they don't shy away from it. I thought they did a good job of addressing it directly. Like, yes, they this was a kingdom involved in the slave trade. Not only involved in the slave trade, but that's how they ran their kingdom. That was their currency. Right. And it was... It was in the first scenes, and it was central to the to the conflict of the story, and it obviously has everything to do with the third act. So they dealt with those questions head on. You just had a more modern, heroic character, you know, as an audience surrogate. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that in, in a historical fiction. What's what's the big deal? And what's the difference between <laughs> every other war movie in the history of time, right. including Maximus, including? You know William Wallace and whatever his name was in uh, in in the Patriot. I mean, if anything, this movie is very similar to the plot structure of the Patriot. You know, I ironically, guess, I guess the argument is if somebody wanted to chastise our take here, well, why are you guys on the side of the family from the uh, Mahershala Ali character in Green Book when they come out and criticize the historical inaccuracy of how that story was told? I, I get it. I, I don't feel those are the same things. I don't think those two things are com comparable, to be honest. And I think this movie did a better job of at least showing warts than something like Green Book did. And that's our issue with Green Book. I think Green Book proposed like this white savior thing. Yeah. Which was absurd. Now, this film actually draws, you know, logical leaps of how Africa changed throughout the centuries that makes sense and that actually fit historical I agree. truths. This Obviously, you're going to encapsulate that 
into a certain character and its artistic license when you fictionalize that. I get it. But those sentiments can still be true. And obviously that, 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 that history could still be true. It's just, I'm, I'm, lo- I'm losing the word for it. There's a, there's a term, uh, when a character like the, uh, the, the character from zero dark 30, Jessica Chastain, she was mm-hmm. an amalgamation of many people in that investigation, right. For looking for Osama bin Laden. So what do you call that? I don't remember. <laughs> Darn it. Well, she, I thought she was based on one character. Or one, no, one no, she person. was she was many. She was many right. women who uh, hunted hunted him down. Not surrogate. Oh, my God. Here we go. It's the beginning of the episode. <laughs> Usually at the end of the episode, we're word salad. Anyway, someone will come up with it. But look, I, I, I don't have a problem with the, the Woman King's historical take on the tribe in 1823, even if it was their M.O., 60 years later, 50 years later. Yeah, no, I, nor do I. I. And I thought, again, I thought the movie addressing it head on was actually a positive right. and that they didn't shy away from it. And it brought a sense of realism and you, any kind of human story or historical story you're going to tell, you have to make, you want to tell as much truth as you can to make everything as well-rounded as possible. And I thought that was great. I mean, you know, that was how that kingdom survived and thrived. And it's, a, a giant wart of the Dahomey kingdom and they didn't shy away from it in the storytelling. Yeah. It's a major part of it. So I, I think the audience came out regardless uh, of these That's controversies, sure. these late hitting controversies on weird, tw- you know, film Twitter, third hand reports that we got this weekend. It was basically, you know, friends of ours going against people uh, on Twitter that, that mm-hmm. I saw and then I'm commenting on now like fourth hand but the woman king did very well at the box office 19 million I, I would say this it's solid box office for a 50 million dollar budget you know it's already earned 20 million after Monday uh, this is this is a a breath of fresh air for the box office that was really struggling barbarian did 10 million last week 6 million this week 21 million on a 10.5 million dollar budget pearl did three. On a $1 million budget, see how they run, just three. I'm going to review that in a minute. Bullet Train still hanging tough in the top five. 225 uh, or 222 on a $90 million budget. Here's what I'll say, Michael. Mm. Those, those five movies involved in this conversation, four of the five mm. anyway. Yes, September is down, but these movies seem like they're profitable. No? Uh, Woman King alone, $19 million, I mean, 30 if you open at 30 million domestically, that's going to get you at least a hundred at the box office domestically historically. So 20 million is probably in the 60 to 80 million range. Uh, that's just domestic without taking into account any kind of international uh, rake, I would think. So, right. So it's probably yeah, it's, breaking even making money on VOD yeah. something at the very I least. I mean, maybe, maybe see how they run won't be, but I mean, we know Pearl probably already is. We know Barbarian probably already is bullet train seems to be on its way if it's not already so yeah i i don't know that you know i echo the sentiment of everyone you know theaters are back baby there's still obviously a downturn historically compared to what september usually is right uh pre-pandemic but it looks like these are going to do well for themselves and you have top gun still which is number six which is over two million dollars still still so people are coming out and you can rent top gun for six dollars at home and yeah, look, yeah. I'm not going to lie. I'm still curious about how long Top Gun's going to stay in theaters and keep making a couple of million. I mean, it's getting to, to like 1980s levels of, you know, just long legs at this point. Mm-hmm. And I saw a report, too, this week. I think it was The Northman, actually, ironically enough. But some movie that looked like a surefire money loser in theaters actually ended up being profitable because of its play on VOD and its uh, second run on uh, on demand there. So... Even if people aren't necessarily come flocking to theaters, there's still money to be made on second run outside of the Blu-ray industry if you just right. want to sit home and rent it on VOD. So the industry is doing okay, I think, overall in climbing back from this pandemic days. I, I would agree. I think they're climbing back, and hopefully they can get over some that lull in September. There was a lull, but uh, we're, we're seeming to come out of it. Don't worry, darlings. Projected to make over $20 million, and, and that, that tracks with me. I've been bullish on box office for Don't Worry, Darling for a while. And, uh, yeah, we got a lot of movies to talk about in this episode that were out this past weekend that ho- all hopefully do well. But uh, let, let's keep going with The Woman King for a minute more because we have an Oscar lens. And, look, Mike, 
I think there are scene, really well done scenes on a contrived plot point that has nothing to do with the history. It's just a character point mm-hmm. that bothered the both of us, and yet it moved me. Like the whole, it's central to the story. It moved me. It's planted firm in the story, and I I enjoyed how it played out. Except we realize it's just totally shoehorned in. Uh, there's a big contrivance about one of the central stories to this movie that I think doesn't... It, it, it's there for emotional manipulation, so it worked on you. I think it works on most people. I was just... Look, I wasn't in the greatest headspace watching this movie anyway. Yeah. Uh, just some stuff going on in my personal life. I, it, so I... I take everything I say with a grain of salt. I was ultimately more negative on this film than anything, but I probably shouldn't have been there. I was there literally just to sit in the theater and escape my own brain for a couple of hours. So, um, but that said, I do think this, it's tough to say without spoiling it, but the storytelling element kind of was wholly unnecessary as far as I'm concerned, as far as the relationship between Viola Davis's character and Thuso Mbedu's character goes. Yeah. I wonder if they needed that. I, I think it, it ultimately works on me at the end of it, but I will uh, I will reserve judgment for others. I think uh, I think that's part of the reason why the movie did well and it will continue to have some legs, though, when you ground a story into the interpersonal dynamics of it. Obviously, you ground a historical war story into those dynamics. Again, you know, not unlike uh, others have done in the past. But I think the the strangest change for the Woman King and why all the comparisons are weird to me is that this is PG-13 and they shied away from almost all of the blood and gore of typical war epics. Yeah. I just think, I think it's a surprising choice because we've seen one after another lean into those. I mean, we, ju- we just watched the, the trailer for All Quiet on the Western Front and it's just a montage of war violence. So this is PG-13 and essentially bloodless for most of the film. Yeah, you get like stains and holes and you don't really get... But yet, a lot of the violence happens off camera, but not like off camera in your mind. It's right. literally just out of the frame shot and you hear the squishiness and the yes. sound effects. Yes. You know, you hear the gushingness. So it is a little bizarre in that respect. I guess it's leaving it up to your imagination, except all it's leaving up to the imagination is the actual visual of somebody's fingernail going into a, an opponent's eyeball. Right. You know what I mean? Like, you know what's going on. It's you know, spelled out you know. for you. You know, so... Script, VFX, I was going in wondering about those two based on the, you know, 90-something percent critic score and the high meta score and the obviously the fact that this is a big-budget war movie. I was wondering if those could be Oscar players. I would say no, but I do think The Woman King has some serious Oscar players, and obviously you got to start with Viola Davis and Tuso Mbedu. They're terrific. They're, they have track records in the awards space recently with Umbedu and, and of course Viola Davis is vying for it every year I mean she is smoldering and brooding and delivers a different type of Viola Davis performance the unshakable hard edge stoic kind that we got from like a Ryan Gosling in First Man something yep. that we really admired Michael so she's high up high up in my rankings right now she was a badass throughout this entire thing I completely agree and it's not your typical Viola Davis performance even though she does still have some of those hallmarks where she's giving you know big speeches and giving motivational speeches and she's a true leader but yeah this is I was surprised even though I shouldn't be because she's capable of doing anything as far as Tuso Mbedo's character goes I don't know that I put it on the Oscars level but she had a lot of scenes where she was literally face to face or nose to nose with another character happened like at least two or three times and to see someone in that close proximity and pulling off the acting I didn't realize she you're saying she's 31 years old yeah I did not realize she was that old, and she does not play a character who is that old. She plays a character who's, at best, what would you say, in, in their teens? Late teens, maybe. I, yeah. I don't know. I, but there was another controversy this weekend about like this age gap performance with her. It was a turnoff the- for me. I mean, there's a relationship between Tuso and Beto's character and one of the, uh, I, I, what do you want to call them, slave trader characters, I guess. Yeah. And... It, if you don't know Tuso Umbedu's real age and she plays a young woman and that part is, again, showing the warts of the Dahomey kingdom. I mean, the preordained marriage is something that is shown right. and early in the film and she's shown to be resistant because she doesn't want to marry this much older man who is talking down to her and slapping her already. And she fights back and she's positioned as this tough teenager who 
doesn't want to go that route and isn't okay and is and wants to stand up for herself and yet she's involved in this love story with this man who is I mean looks the optics of it he looks much older than her and, and the yet, story I think is supposed to be that he's much older than her right but do you realize how old he is in real life he's 27 and she's right 34. and I'm going to say I'm, I'm guessing he's younger than she is in real life four years younger so it's crazy I don't know I, I knew how old Mbedu was based on the Underground Railroad and, and her pre previous Emmys campaign. So I just kinda knew going in. So I didn't look at I didn't look at it like that at all. So it wasn't a factor with me. I, I know she does look young. She's almost like the uh Lady Whistledown character in Bridgerton, which is where my brain <laughs> has gone. And now those are just words to me. <laughs> I never take it back. That's where my life is. I am Lady Whistledown. Referencing Lady Whistledown of Bridgerton. Mm-hmm. What about Sir Screaming Up? Is that a character? <laughs> I think she's up there with Stephanie uh, Sue right now. Uh, Kiki Palmer's probably above both of them if she is in the supporting actress category. But I still have her in lead. Michelle Williams, is she going lead? Is she going supporting? I think that matters for both candidacies here of Viola Davis and Tuson Bedu, But they should be in the mix. If they're not top fives, they're top tens. In the Oscars conversation, Michael, they're high on our list right now. Before we head off to the festivals, but uh, I mean, they got are they high on your list as well? I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Uh, what do you think about Lashana Lynch too? My favorite character of the story. Yeah. What a badass in her own right. She's also got a ton of the best lines. It's more of a movie star performance from Lashana Lynch because she's so awesome, and I just can't wait for more Marvel stuff from her. Uh, I'm really kind of bummed that we only got one Bond movie with Lashana Lynch, so mm. that's that's fun. John Boyega is also perhaps the, the, the most elusive character of the film, but he delivers a performance that the film rests on, I would say, in many a sense. And he's had a great year, John Boyega, uh, with this, The Woman King, and Breaking. So uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of his, and I think he does exactly what this plot and what this story needed. So that, uh, you know, I admire their performances. That's another notch on the belt, uh, you know, of a long resume there, however you want to say it. I probably should say it better as a critic. That's why I'm a <laughs> audio podcast guy and not uh, – I don't write this stuff down, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, well, there's, there's time. Um, I I think I would be surprised if Viola's not firmly in the conversation. Uh, maybe she makes the nomination. I would be surprised, too, if costumes don't get a serious consideration. Right. Uh, period piece, tribal garb, those are usually catnip for the Academy in that category. The amount, the the, the quantity of quality costumes yeah. here. It's it's incredible. And you uh, you obviously have multiple set pieces where you get the Europeans costumes, you get other tribes, warring tribes, and you go deep into the world building uh, of the Dahomey kingdom. So why wouldn't this be in the mix or or in the thick of it, I should say for, for costume design. It it has to be in my opinion. And on the same note, production design on a, on a $50 million budget, they have, they have built some epic sets on the one hand, and there's a couple. I wouldn't say they went crazy with like news of the world level sets, and you, you go one after another. But there are, there are inter- there's interior work that I think is as impressive as the exterior work. Where you know you 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 are in the baths. That, you that's the first thing I thought of. Yeah, the caverns. That, that shot. Yeah, the lit by candlelight all around. I don't even know. Uh, we, I mean, I was thinking the whole time during those scenes, did they actually build something like that back in the Dahomey Kingdoms? And that kind of place actually, because it's like elegant, but right. it's all natural resources. The walls of the palace. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, you know, the, the set decoration is incredible. So production design costumes, I would probably argue that, that they have the best chance for the Woman King right now. And and, and that's, that's not Over saying... Over Viola? Yeah, that's not saying that much, because I think... Viola Davis is, is in the thick of it right now, even though you know we haven't seen all the best actress uh, contenders going forward. Does she get boxed out late because she's been nominated so often? But makeup and hairstyling, I think the, the hairstyling is right there. Again, yeah. it's, it's probably hard to get nominated when there's no gore in a war movie. So I think if this movie was rated R, makeup and hair would definitely be in it. But hey, you know what? You don't want to... 
you don't want to do that, that's fine. I, I, I'm all for it. You, you leave the gore at the door. And, um, yeah, I mean, the hairstyles are obviously period specific, so maybe it gets in on, on that factor alone. But my guess is, like, you got four major contenders before picture in costumes, production, design, and then the two lead, and, then, and Davis and Mbedu. Three and a half, two and a half as an over-under? What would you say? Probably three and a half is probably a good number, but it's bizarre because you're talking about, I, I'm agreeing with you, like I think costumes has to be in serious consideration. I think Viola Davis has to be in serious consideration. I, I would argue makeup and hair probably does too because there's makeup uh, effects not only with the uh, the wounds and stuff, but with the actual makeup that they had to wear, the tribal makeup during their celebrations and their ceremonies uh, that was on. By the way, did this have like the most extras in any movie this year? A lot, There was like yeah. hundreds of cast members in this. Good. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad. You're, you're, you're fighting for scale on a budget that's big, but not, you know, blockbuster level huge, right? right? So the fact that they got so many hands helping out is is, is a big deal. So, but yeah, yeah, I, I was me, impressed overall. To, to me, I, I, I don't know. I, again, I was in a bad headspace. I never. We're talking about a film that I think is going to be multi-nominated, but I never felt like I was watching a Best Picture contender. I tell you, though, what's... What separates The Woman King from Ford v. Ferrari? You know, I think, like, this film is going to be a crowd pleaser. It's going to be a box office doer. It's going to be in the thick of the conversation for a while. Why can't it take the ninth or tenth spot in a Best Picture race, especially if it's got four other noms heading in? You know, three, I think three that's, it's, it's an interesting because if this feels like the second or third movie already this year where we're having this conversation of maybe it can ride itself to a Best Picture nomination on the backs of how it does in the, the text, which is usually a spot that's only reserved for one film at most every year. So, I mean, we've talked about this with Top Gun. I thought we talked about it with one other one, too. So uh, if we're if we're betting right now, if we're betting, are we mm-hmm. betting Best Picture or are we betting against Best Picture? I'm probably Costumes, Production Design, Davis, and I'm probably betting against Best Picture myself. Yeah, that's if, if this was more, and I do wonder if that relationship angle between uh, Mbedu and Davis's character, if that wasn't there, if this would be more of a showcase piece for Viola Davis, e- even more of a showcase piece, I should say. So if Davis was featured more prominently in like historical Viola Davis type roles or scenes maybe throughout this, if she was more of a threat, if I came out of this saying she has to be nominated, I wonder if that would make me feel better about predicting it to be nominated for best picture. But right now I'm kind of like you, I wouldn't be surprised that I think she should be in the conversation. I would like to see her there. I think she should be there uh, as far as the best actress field, but I don't know that she's the strongest nominee right now, and because of that, I would probably bet against Best Picture. So you bet the under? And I, I'm probably with you. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about Viola Davis as this is a performance worthy of an Oscar nomination, but I could see, based on the largesse of the field, her mm. getting boxed out. So I keep mm. talking myself. We keep talking each other down here. I'm basically now I'm saying costumes and production design, and and unfortunately the actors will get boxed out. Darn it! So two and a half would be your uh, your. Uh, I would bet. I would probably bet the under on two and a half, to be honest. And which is a shame because I think this movie stacks up to recent Best Picture four or five nominee films. I think it's at that level. I give it a B plus yeah, eighty seven. Yeah, I think it's a strong film, and I give it, I give it that grade because highs are high. Mm. You know, th- there's some lows and lulls, but the highs are high. And I, you know, some people have gotten on the score. Eric Weber and whatnot. I mean, that's that's fair. I mean, this movie was fairly quiet in terms of the music. He did. He didn't like the scores. What you saying? He did not like the score. I so. like the score. I, okay. I thought it was. It set the mood again. It just made me. It, it felt tribal, it, and that's kind of what the the whole theme of the movie was. Yeah, this woman army that's going against these men, uh, these dueling tribes, these tribes that are coming together to fight them that are on horseback and have guns, and you know, it's kind of a clash of the the generations there, warring technologies. I tell you, I, it was the first movie I saw four nights in a row at the movie theater, something I haven't done in a long time. You saw this four times in a row? No, I saw four movies in a row at my AMC's. Oh, all right. uh, the, the, I, I guess we could move on to the next few movies here. I'll do them quick. Yeah. But I saw See How They Run, night two. I had a fine time. I mean, basically, See How They Run is worthwhile as a performance piece if you want to just go and enjoy Saoirse Ronan. 
you know, just being so determined and like the perfect foil to a drunk dude like Chris Pine like Sam Rockwell, <laughs> who's just he delivers one of my favorite Sam Rockwell performances, which is saying a lot. So I'm a big Sam Rockwell fan. It's just a, a really fun, uh, a fun turn for him. And you got like this ensemble. Adrian Brody's great in it. David Oyelowo, Ruth Wilson, Harris Dickinson. They all play. They all play these roles with relish. They're doing their job as part of an ensemble, and they're very giving. And it was just an absolute blast to watch them having so much fun. And what was otherwise kind of a middling whodunit, like I wasn't dazzled by the 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 narrative overall. I, maybe if I'm a, more of an Agatha Christie super fan, maybe mm-hmm. there's a lot of Easter eggs in that regard. So like I'm given see how they run a B minus. High production values, really great acting. I'm a little down on the script, but I, I still had a fine time at the movie theaters. Another one that's that's more of a background movie, you think, more so than like any kind of awards player. Right. I don't think I don't think it'll be involved. Even though I think you know Sam Rockwell will be in my top twenty and Sir sure. will be in my top twenty because I enjoyed you know all their embellishments there. So. That even sounds like a fun pair. I mean, I do want to see that, but, it, it, you know, just Saoirse Ronan and Sam Rockwell together. If Sam Rockwell's going to play that kind of, like, is he dopey? I want, to, I want a dopey Sam Rockwell. He plays a drunk in the, in the, yeah, in the there film. You go. He's That's a drunken detective. For. So <laughs> if you want to watch Sam Rockwell subtly play a drunken detective, it's worth, it's worth a trip to the movies. So Beautiful. That was night two. Night three, I went to see Pearl. And I'll be honest with you, I was struggling through the first 45 minutes. I wasn't the biggest really? fan of X. X was a, it was a solid film for me, C plus, B minus. I, 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 I was probably disappointed because, you know, people we, we love love the film even more. And I'm just a, again, I'm a, I'm a snob. Got yeah. I'm a snob. Pearl was a slow starter, hitting like the marks that I saw from the marketing. You know, we, we knew, we, we cover the marketing too much. And when you're just going to go beat for beat on the origin of evil story, I know exactly what's going to happen and the scenes that you're building up to. I'm a little aggravated a half hour in. Now, that being said, Pearl pays off. Like, this is a conventional story. However, there are there's a tremendous performance by Mia Goth in this. Mm-hmm. It's a showcase for her, and she delivers 30 minutes in this film that might be as, as good as 30 minutes of any actor in any movie this year. So that's oh, wow. that's high praise for me. Yeah, but the problem is there's screaming nails on a chalkboard, blowing out her lungs scenes after, okay. like, brooding scenes in there. Now, now is that a, a consistency thing, or is that an also Mike can't deal with loud noises thing? That could be both. Yeah. I I would argue that it's an inconsistency thing. Now, okay. serial murderers may be known to have bad tempers. Yeah, well, I may be I overreacting. Murder in general probably isn't <laughs> quiet most times. It's not quiet. So, <laughs> in terms of an uneven performance, it kind of disqualifies her a little bit. Now, it's, is it her fault? It's a, it's the editing fault. It's the storytelling fault. It's the script's fault, perhaps. But like, there's she's delivering this nuanced you know, just a powder keg performance within 30 minutes of this film that I can't get enough of. And I, I think she should do in every movie. I just, I love Mia Goth for some of this film and the movie ultimately delivers. It's just kind of what you would expect. So I'm probably lower than a lot of people C plus on plural, but I, I, I'm still a fan. Like, and I, they made it for a million bucks, Mike. Yeah. I mean, that's what I, it's, I mean, regardless of how you feel, what's what Mia Goth and Ty West are doing this year. They are, uh, Crazy people. They yeah. are truly, truly madmen. I mean, putting out... Ty West is on track. If he can get this Maxine one out, he's going to have a trilogy in a year from a major independent studio. I don't think that's a thing. <laughs> I don't think that's a thing that happens, ever. Starring the same femme fatale, the same yeah. leading lady, playing multiple roles throughout. I mean, this is like unprecedented, historic stuff we're living through. Pearl will probably make... 12 to 15 million when it's all said and done which is at the box office. 12 dollars or 15 dollars to every dollar for production for it that's a win for a24 which is what x did and yep. never mind the amount that x and pearl is going to make on vod mm-hmm. probably make something similar and then maxine will come out and do whatever i mean it's it's huge bucks for them and then they're gonna they're gonna be able to sell and license these movies out for a long time and what a financial windfall i would say I you mean, know. good for A24 for taking this 
endeavor on too. Right. It's not an easy ask to, I mean, Ty West just churning these things out, having them be above average. I mean, I haven't seen Pearl yet, but X was enjoyable. I, like you, I was kind of suckered in by higher expectations, maybe let down a little by it, but that's my own fault. The movie mm-hmm. itself stands on its own, and it's a, a throwback to the Halcyon days of, like, 70s horror films, I would say. Right. Uh, but it certainly checked a lot of boxes for any kind of horror fan. I imagine Pearl is probably in the same vein. It's much more of a character study than you would expect. Like, you would expect kind I've of seen a... Twisted Wizard of Oz. It's uneventful. For 45 minutes, there's there's no, like, events of the story okay. until you get down the line. So that's that was surprising to me. Like, this is just we're hanging out with Pearl for 45 minutes, and sh- there are red flags. Let's be honest. And then well. things start to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I am curious. I'm going to see Pearl at some point, whether it's when it comes to VOD or whatever. But I just for historic purposes i really do hope maxine gets out before the end of the year i think it'd be very cool to have a one year contained new horror trilogy that was basically each film had to be shot i mean maybe x was shot in 2021 i don't know but like i know maxine's has to be shot in 2022 i know pearl had to be shot in 2022 so it'd be kind of cool to have a one year contained horror trilogy very cool the coolest and a24 has got to be over the moon about it because they're rolling in money compared to what mm-hmm. they spent. Uh, speaking of Over the Moon, I saw Moonage Daydream in hey, IMAX. Now. In IMAX. This is David Bowie's documentary. And I was not a fan of Montage of Heck. I, I got to be honest. So when this director came out with, with the Bowie doc, I was a little hesitant to go see it. But uh, speaking of Eric Weber, he's on Midnight Movie Talk and he's pounding the table. You got to mm. see this. You got to see this at IMAX. So it's like one of the last few nights to see it in IMAX, Moonage Daydream. So I went last night. I thought I was going to have to pay full price, but here's something cool about AMCs. Because I did my three days in a row, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't have an A-list left, but I spent $10 on the ticket because it was half off Tuesdays. Ah, you see? Is it that nice? So I just felt, care of you. I felt good all around because of my A-list there. And I got to say... Montage of Heck was one movie, and I expected this to be nails on a chalkboard for some of it. This is an easy watch. Moonage Daydream is not a difficult watch. Is it an artsy watch? Are you watching like a music video for two hours and 15 minutes? Are you watching Montage for two hours and 15 minutes? Yes. But I will take this every day of the week. Montage of what's essentially a repeating structure, Michael. Because they have a live performance of David Bowie, mm-hmm. and then you ha- you mix that in to his music videos, film work, TV interviews, tons of archival photos and videos from his childhood, from his future as a visual artist in his older years. And all of that is set to David Bowie talking about the artistic process. And this movie is David Bowie talking about the artistic process with five to ten minute segments based off of live performances right and you get this it's it happens three times in like the first 20 minutes of the film i'm like are we gonna is this gonna be the structure of every it's just one one of his hits to the next it was it was the whole movie like that and i tell you what i was not bored for maybe more than a few minutes like there's a lull in the middle i mean you're dealing with the goods of an IMAX or a Limax even, but awesome visual and audio stimuli throughout. So it's basically a concert with narration? It's kind of, well, it's like a music video concert. Like they're going back and forth between the live performances, but it's, I mean, it's a ton of backstage access type of stuff. They got our footage of of him backstage. Is there a storyline or is it just the kind of inside the mind of Bowie? The through line is him talking about how he writes his songs and, and why he's making making art. I mean, that's it's it's as simple as that. And you know how his travels impacts it. Some of which how his life and and you know events in his life like his marriage, etc. How that impacted his art. But it's not like this beat for beat career trajectory. I mean, they cover you get the sense of his career, which was cool for me because I really didn't know. Bowie's career I really didn't know the ins and outs of it so I got some of that I'm curious to know more I did 
you know, I've been listening to Bowie's music forever. I've been hearing him in, in, in Wes Anderson movies forever. And of course, you know, he's, he's a great actor, character actor, especially in a, in a lot of cool films from the prestige all the way back to labyrinth, obviously. But yeah. David Bowie was just not someone who's, I guess, physical sense. I knew as much as like, I knew his music for the last 20, 25 years or whatever. So this was, this was something I, I did not expect. I did not expect to love Moonage daydream. I, I knew the last film that this guy made montage of heck with Kurt Cobain. I mean, that was, that was rough to watch. Yeah, I wasn't but, crazy about that either. And but I'm that might have been fan. that might have been because of the subject matter. Yeah, because it was just so hard to watch. But Brett Morgan, you know, tip tip of the cap to Brett Morgan here. And this movie should be nominated in best documentary feature. Well, that's where I was going to go next. Is that because it is so heavily archival, and it, I mean, it sounds like it's all archival. Is there any like narrator over? Is there any present well, day stuff? David or is Bowie's it just, the narrator, and so it's all past. Just footage. They tried to do these documentaries before. I think uh, HBO tried to do a Diana in her own words mm-hmm. documentary. Uh, it, they're never as good as this. This is like the best version of an in your own words subject, you know, subjectivity through the subject postmortem kind of documentaries I, I've seen in, in, in forever. So obviously you got the goods delivered with the music and the live performances, but Moonage Daydream is is unique in how well it executes this artist talking about being an artist, you know, through line. I, I, I haven't seen that before. I'm a sucker for it, I'll be honest. So if you don't want to hear someone just talk about why they write songs and why they <laughs> dress up in fashion that excites them and only that, and if you don't want to see that then maybe moonage daydream's not for you and maybe david bowie's not for you or maybe you just listen to his music but two hours and 15 minutes flew by i was very surprised it was the best movie i've seen this last week which was uh wow. which was cool that is cool it did finish top 10 at the box office as well making just over 1.2 million it led the week uh with the average per screen rake over seven thousand dollars per screen so I've seen a lot of high marks, a lot of people happy with it, so you're echoing those, echoing those sentiments here as well. Uh, going to be interesting to keep an eye on that one to see how, because the doc feature branch does not usually play nice with uh, purely archival footage documentaries, as we've commented on and made note of times before here. All right, let's start wrapping up. we got a couple Oscar contender trailers to run through, Michael. Yeah, and uh, just as a prerequisite, the Best International Feature Selections couple updates on those michael rrr was passed over by india yeah. last film show which was traveling the festivals that will be india's selection that's devastating news for rrr's candidacy despite the fact that a lot of oscar pundits are saying it's still going to be campaigned rather hard uh, i don't know rrr if it's got the chance as, as as i would hope i i think it like original song it's probably got a darn good chance but it probably needed that international feature yeah that's category. how i feel about it too I, I mean i think i just it just makes sense to me knowing how we know the academy thinks at least what we do know about them there's got to be that thought of well if its own country didn't think it was good enough to represent it how am i going to vote for it for best picture or screenplay or anything like that so i would imagine that's a big blow to its oscars chances not saying it can't happen not saying it won't happen but i would imagine that's a big blow to its oscars chances other overall there are political issues involved, so that's a factor, as is with this next film, Holy Spider, not selected by Iran. World War Three was selected, so Neon, hoping it had a uh, contender from Ali Abbasi, the Cannes Best Actress winner in Zar Amir Ibrahimi. We thought we would have a film that could you know, have an outside in chance, a puncher's mm-hmm. chance, but no. But anyway, that's the prerequisites here for the Oscar trailer section because we're going to start with a couple international features or have a couple international features and decision to leave, Michael. In, in a trailer from Mubi, Mubi cut this trailer, director Park Chan-wook, Tang Wei, Park Hail, and this is another can winner that could factor into the race. I'm really excited to see it at the New York Film Festival, but it's South Korea's, South Korea's selection and perhaps... 
one of the front runners in that international feature category, right? Yeah, now. officially South Korea selecting to represent that country for the 2023 Oscars. The trailer looks great. The story is intriguing. The ending is said to be absolutely soul crushing. We've previewed this movie a billion times already. I'm in. I can't wait to see it like you. But here's what I really want to say about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, infamously, <laughs> this movie has been hyped up by you to be a werewolf movie. And we have since not seen any werewolves anywhere. And you and I keep talking about this. But I think I've gone from being cynical about that to, like, grateful that you introduced that <laughs> subplot into this movie. Because now I dissect every trailer and every still to see if there's some hidden werewolf plot in there that everybody has just been tight-lipped about. I mean, this is essentially how just giant conspiracy theories get out of control and QAnon yeah. happens. But because you hammered it into my head so much, now I refuse to leave the thought that this isn't a werewolf movie. Look, I, I need to see a wolf somewhere, so I'll be hunting this every frame to see if there's a werewolf that I can be like, ah, you didn't get me. I never lost the scent. I was on this the whole time. <laughs> Look, I was referencing one of the leading Oscar pundits in America's preview of Decision to Leave prior to Can mm-hmm. when I talked about this <laughs> werewolf subplot. Now, I'm not going to throw that person under the bus at the moment. I respect it too much. But I have to say, her being a werewolf explains every single one of the plot points in this trailer. <laughs> so before you... Ju- yeah, I mean, look, before everybody out there says there's no werewolves in this movie, and I don't care if you see it at a festival, don't tell me. Don't mm-hmm. No spoilers, please. Let me explain. Number one, a guy falls off a bluff. Yep. Like a mountain thing, little canyon, and in a canyon, and... If your wife's turned into a werewolf atop said bluff, uh-huh. then it makes sense that you would fall backwards off of that bluff. Okay. That's that's a that's an inarguable point. I, I agree with that. If I saw my significant other turn into a wolf in front of me for the first time, it'd be a little startling. Yes. Now, you're wondering why she thinks the interrogation is funny at the police mm-hmm. station, and she's smirking. But she's still laughing at the fact that her goofy-ass husband fell backwards off a bluff because she turned into a werewolf. <laughs> That's hilarious. It's like funniest home videos level hilarious. You can't help but smirk because you know what happened. Now, she has an alibi. It's airtight. Mm -hmm. And you would have an airtight alibi if you could threaten people as a werewolf and force them into lying for you. I mean, just anybody who knows you're a werewolf. So now she's smirking because she has the secret that she's a werewolf who killed her husband Mm -hmm. by transforming but it's not really a secret because she's also used her ability to turn into a werewolf to threaten those around her into right. covering for her. I see. That's right. Okay. It just explains everything. So <laughs> the fact that the detective falls in love with her mm. because he does not know that she's a werewolf mm. and she lets him fall in love with her because she's just waiting for the next full moon and she can't stop smirking. Mike, I can't wait for this movie. She's a werewolf. What if they both turn into werewolves? That what if that's the twist? Well, what if she falls in love with him and then she just bites him? Nom nom. And then they're both werewolves. He's a werewolf. There's there better be a fucking wolf in this movie, Mike. I don't think there's gonna be. I don't think so either. We could dream. Uh, speaking of a movie that would be enhanced by a werewolf, Amsterdam. Yeah. We got all the TV spots. David O. Russell, 20th Century Features. Everybody's in this movie from Margot Robbie to Taylor Swift to Chris Rock to Rami Malek. Michael, Mm -hmm. this movie has gotten killed. Yeah, got killed. I still want to see it, but just the bad reviews, they're out there. I will say, to their credit and to, to our gender's detriment, there's been a lot of female critics coming out enraged at David O. Russell as well as the top-line people working with him, mm-hmm. probably rightfully so, uh, with his allegations against him there. I'd seen it a lot more brought to light and repeated and hammered uh, by women critics and reviewers than men. And again, I think that's the, you know that's something that's a shortcoming on our part. Uh, we try to bring it up as often as we can, but I'm sure we fall short as well. As far as the movie itself, like I, I feel bad. I still want to see it. Well, Apparently I mean, there's a Taylor Swift scene that's yeah. gift-worthy, but... Okay. I, I'm disheartened by this. Yeah, this is not this is not good. Two, yeah. and it's a big budget, right? It's at least a fifty million dollar budget that we were talking about last time. Where 
you know, 20th century was just going to release it direct and not do any film festivals because that's what they typically do for West Side Story sized, big budget mm. awards films. But this is execution dependent. So if it's not going to work, it's probably not going to make money either, Amsterdam. So yeah, David Ehrlich said it's a hot mess. Zoe Rose Bryant, Next Best Picture, says it's a massive misfire. These trailers have been kind of one note. Yeah. Thus they, far, they're the they've, same they've kind okay. of cheeky lines, too, from Christian Bale and Mark. I don't understand how, I mean, David O. Russell, if you separate the art from the artist, as a director, knows how to make a movie and knows how to interweave comedy in with these, like, convoluted, dramatic well, We thought scripts. the Chris Rock scene was funny in the first trailer, and then we thought the... So I don't I I can't because of that I don't understand how when you have that behind the camera you have the talent in front of the camera Margot Robbie Christian Bale John David Washington Chris Rock like where how how do you screw this up I keep laughing at the Mike Myers accent yes me too (laughs) (laughs) and Mike Myers and Robert De Niro going back and forth I mean when do you ever see that on a film you know exactly so I don't get it yeah it's uh not looking good for Amsterdam and those Oscar chances and your yeah didn't I pick that did I pick that or did I stick with she said for uh... <laughs> did you did you stick with well nobody will know nobody will ever know we'll never <laughs> reference it I will I will I take wanted it to, to go grade. with she said and I think you talked me into going back into Amsterdam for best picture and now Look, I have to live with that. listen to this yeah. now oh now yeah. you're gonna make me reference no, it's it not my purpose. fault it's not my fault <laughs> you said you had <laughs> principles and you had to stick to your pick from two years ago which was Amsterdam no I don't recall that I recall it being your fault this is a Clayton Davis picking to the wonder for best picture level gaff by you and I just want you to recognize it hmm it's not how I remember it, Mike. <laughs> well, in a terrible transition, let's talk about Close from A24, <laughs> uh, the most serious movie ever, yeah. written and directed by Lucas Dant, Grand Prix winner at Cannes, best film at the Cindy Phil- Sydney Australia Film Fest there, selected by Belgium to vie for best international feature, 83 Metascore, 93% on 25 Rotten Tomatoes. Michael, this trailer, two kids, maybe 10 years old, best friends, many beautiful shots of them playing together in France, Belgium. Classmates wonder if they're a couple. They deny this. What do you think so far in this trailer? I really wasn't crazy about it. I understand. I come here all the time and say I want trailers to, you know, show us the first 30 minutes and just leave us with more questions than answers. And part of that, though, is that you have to the questions have to be intriguing. I have no idea what's going on in this movie. Is mm-hmm. the is the potential gay romance, the young boy gay romance a, a centerpiece of the movie? Is it a, a child abduction thing with the way that door was split? Give me something about the conflict so I can have some... I, I, may, I was going to say so I can have some sort of expectation, but maybe they don't want you to have expectations because expectations ruin movie-watching experiences as we talk about all the time here. So I don't know. I wasn't nuts about this trailer. There's a lot of traumatized looks from all the characters mm-hmm. in the second half of the trailer. Something terrible happens. We don't know what. We see a broken door going to be heavy by all accounts and you know go back to matt neglia's review etc if you want to know more want to want more clues uh we'll move on to armageddon time focus features james gray and hathaway 74 metascore 89 percent on 49 reviews so it's off to a good start coming out of the festivals in terms of perception jeremy strong anthony hopkins michael not necessarily with you you didn't like this trailer I, I really didn't like if Babylon was a Stefan on SNL type trailer like this trailer has everything Margot Robbie <laughs> fighting a snake a giant titty in the middle of, like if if that was the Babylon trailer this was if Stefan was just describing tropes <laughs> I mean this 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 felt like it had every trope in the world in this trailer and like I said Mike already to you I don't mind if trailers leave me nonplussed if I'm just like, eh, whatever. But I don't think trailers should be cut in a way in which they actively dissuade me from wanting to see the movie. Yeah. And I felt like that's what this did. I've struggled with James Gray in the past. I'll just be honest, even though we admired quite a bit about Ad Astra, the story didn't really work for me. So, yeah, I I don't know. I don't know what to expect from Armageddon Time. I did not expect this storyline in the trailer. Anthony Hopkins delivers a nice speech. Very progressive grandpa there. 
Jessica Chastain just shows up. Jeremy Strong and Anne Hathaway are dealing with some issues, I would say, in their own hearts. So, I, yeah, I'm just uh, I'm a little surprised this is the direction of the film. I, I am heartened by the fact that this is not going to be a flattering portrayal about the time period. It's not going to be like this nostalgic whitewashing in many ways. So yeah. That's but good, at the, perhaps. at the same time, it's like, what are the conflicts? Like, it's every coming-of-age trope we've seen in every movie. Right. You're a kid. You can't pursue art. Uh, I don't want you to ever see that black child again because he's a bad influence. And yeah. I have a, a, a terrible lens of race relations because I'm a, from a different generation than you because I'm your mother. This, just this stuffy white private school this is where you'll learn how to be a real man and then grandpa has some friendly sage wisdom because he's the moral of the convergence of every storyline we're showing in this trailer and movie and i have to do my parents proud and i'm starting to see how much they've sacrificed for me now okay (laughs) you're kind of difficult to please though can we recognize this much because did you see this trailer and think that it was it was like great no, but you just said I don't want I don't want them to not tell me what's going to happen, and now I don't want them to tell me what's going to happen. Leave me intrigued. Don't tell. Don't show me a story that I've seen a billion times before. And if you're gonna, yeah. let me ask questions about it. Don't. This was. I mean, All I right, felt well, like let, this was setting this. This was a preview I could have watched in the theaters in the yeah. mid '90s, waiting for the English Patient yeah. to come on. <laughs> you know. Yeah. This this would have fit. Uh, well, let's move on to a undisputably better trailer in Corsage. Yes, agree. Austria selects Corsage as their entry for Best International Feature. Vicky Creeps. I'm a fan. How about you? I was a fan of this one as well. Class Warfare, Vicky Creeps, beautiful dresses, period piece. I'm not convinced this isn't just a secret Phantom Thread 2 movie, but it does seem to be a much more conventional showing of an ally using their privilege for the benefit of the oppressed class than Armageddon time uh, through a 2022 lens, at least, which is ironic, considering this is 1800s Austria and Armageddon time is depicting 1980s New York. But look, pretty costumes, big flowy dresses. I'm guessing that's enough to sell you. The reputations we build. <laughs> Corsage is about Austrians Empress Elizabeth in the 1870s. She's in this political marriage. She's a national celebrity, but her influence is waning on the society, and her husband's trying to box her out so that she doesn't have uh, influence on the government, certainly, and they're trying to like put her out to pasture. Like That's the gist of the story. Now... This is quite the montage of dirty looks between her and the Empire Emperor. There's many callbacks to not only Phantom Thread because Vicky Crepe's same actress in the fashion, but obviously and the marriage stuff. But like the favorite, like there's a lot of the favorite in here. The yes. fainting technique early on, the fact that she's drowning herself in dark chocolate <laughs> with the excess. <laughs> so like IFC puts out one heck of a montage and it. I, li- I really like the song Camille's She Was. So I think we got we had a good trailer here. So you were upset that we bumped this trailer into this episode, but I'm glad because we got like a cherry on top of this Sunday for for a pre you know reviews and previews Oscar race checkpoint here. Um, I'm glad. Yeah, and this is exactly the opposite of Armageddon time. I feel like I know what this movie is going to be, but yet I still have questions. It intrigued me. I want to see it more <laughs> after watching it. <laughs> I'm in. I'm in for. I'm in as well. But it just goes back to to show you, like montage is always better. No, just montage. <laughs> montage always. Mon- when in doubt, montage. I agree. Uh, I'm glad that this episode went about an hour. We are incapable of doing less. We will hopefully have a shorter one for the second part of this mm-hmm. ORC coming up. But uh, as always, dear listener, we need to hear from you. What are your thoughts, questions, or concerns about any of these trailers that we previewed, or? Did you see The Woman King for yourself yet, as well as did you watch Confess Fletch uh, or See How They Run or Pearl or any of the other movies referenced in this movies? Let us know those and your thoughts on them and your thoughts on their Oscars chances. You can leave us those as well as any other thoughts 
you have about anything else we do here in the MMO Empire on our social medias. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook and Instagram at Oscar on Twitter, Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com, and on Reddit. We are available wherever you do hear podcasts. If you're listening to us on either the Apple Podcasts or Spotify app, if you would be so kind to leave us a five-star review, if you appreciate what we do here, those help us out a ton. Thank you for those of you who have done so thus far. Uh, Michael, let's have some words of wisdom. And let's tell the people what's coming next, even though we've already told them what's coming next. Well, it's wise to cut humongous Oscar Ace checkpoints into two parts, which <laughs> is what we'll do next uh, with the Fablemans winning the Grosch Audience Award and a, an eight-point plan by the Academy to fix the Oscars. We've got to talk about all that stuff, uh, you know, heading into Golden Globe story. And uh, what else we got? we got a, we got a ton more stuff to talk about in, in the next episode. And, yes, hopefully that is shorter for once. But, uh <laughs> We shall see. No, All that stuff and we're going to be shorter. <laughs> Too much stuff to talk about. <laughs> but hey, at least we, we were wise enough to split this into two. It had to be. That's true. Good point there. Yes. Uh, good call by you. Guys, when reality sucks, you can come to live in a twisted Wizard of Oz world with Pearl and us. We are Mike, <laughs> Mike, and Oscar trying to make award season year-round. Without the stuffiness, we will see you all very soon. See you. See you.